Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. the Word of God, and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter number 3. The book of 1 Timothy and chapter number 3. We're continuing with our series of the pastoral epistles, understanding that the Apostle Paul is writing this time to individuals who are acting in the office of a pastor, that the books of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are written to two men, um, Timothy, his son of the faith, and Titus, the son of the faith. Timothy, of course, would be trained by Paul and took the work of the church of Ephesus at this time, Why? Titus took the work of Crete, and both of them had a responsibility to be working with the folks in the church and to raising them up. In addition, the Apostle Paul had also gave specific instructions to Titus to ordain elders in every city. With that in mind, we come to the context today in the book of 1 Timothy and chapter number 3. The book of 1 Timothy, chapter number 3, and notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse number 1. 1 Timothy, chapter 3, and verse number 1. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man not know how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest be, being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter number 3? The book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, and notice with me in verse 1, and notice the phrase, the office of a bishop. The office of a bishop. And with the Lord's help, we want to go over here the list that God gives, this list that God provided, dealing with the idea of the qualifications of a pastor. The qualifications of a pastor. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And as we go through this list, help us to have wisdom and discernment to understand what these mean and how to apply them, and that we could go ahead and look towards you. Again, I understand as a pastor preaching about a pastor that Sometimes it could get a little bit awkward, but Lord, help me to be out of the way and just clearly proclaim what the Bible clearly says. In order for that to be done, I reckon myself dead. I die to my ambitions, my goals, my desires, what I want accomplished. Anything about me, I set aside. 
and ask that you fill me with your precious spirit, that you can get your work accomplished today, that we can get understanding and get a good grasp of what you would have us to do. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Part of Paul's instructions to Titus in the book of Titus was that Titus was to ordain elders in every city. As we explained this morning, every healthy organism reproduces itself. Every healthy organism reproduces itself, so a healthy church will reproduce itself. And if a church is going to reproduce itself, that also means we have to come to the place where we ordain elders. Now, before we can ordain elders, we have to get to the place where we've trained elders. And so this is why this list is so important, not because you want to have a good pastor in the first place, but going beyond that, knowing that we have the responsibility to lead people to the Lord, to disciple them. And from the people that we lead to the Lord and disciple, we're expecting there are some people who are called to preach. You know, when's the last time you saw someone called to preach? Some of you may have never seen anyone answer the call to preach. To come to the place where they said, God's called me. He's given me a sacred duty. You know, it's something we're missing and nowadays, and we wonder why sometimes things are falling apart, because God's still calling, and God's still working, but someone needs to know what the qualifications are. Can anyone say, hey, you know what, I want to be a pastor? We have to understand that there's qualifications that God gives, and we as a church have the responsibility to be preparing, planning that one day, and hopefully many, many times, a young man will be called from the congregation and surrender to the call to preach. And that we'll have the ability to train him, to mold him, to work with him, allow God to do something, and send him out, out of this church to go start another work. It should be something we should be praying for. It should be something that we're looking forward to. Young men called to preach. That's something we should desire. So because we should have that desire, we need to know what the qualifications are so that way we could be praying for young men. We could be praying for people to respond to God's call. Now, God doesn't call everyone, but to whom he does call, we also want to do what we can to support them, to look forward, to prepare them for what God has them to do. And so as we examine this, the first thing I want to cover here is the terms for a pastor terms for a pastor. We understand that within the Bible, there are several terms mentioned in the New Testament that are synonymous with pastor. The word synonymous means they're the same thing. And so we have several different terms. The Bible calls them a different things in the Bible, but they deal with the same office. There's only one office and they have three terms. We know the common term that we use is the idea of pastor. This carries the idea of a shepherd, which is also used. This is someone who takes care of the flock. And that's one of the primary things that a pastor is supposed to do is to shepherd the flock, to feed the sheep, to take care of the sheep, to guard the sheep. That we know that the whole theme this year is, is excuse me, <coughs> is the shepherd and the sheep. And that's what God does is he places under shepherd to work on his behalf to help take care of his people and that the shepherd is to guard them. So we have the idea of a pastor, which carries the idea of a shepherd. The Bible also uses the term bishop. That's the same equivalence of a pastor. The word bishop means overseer. 
And so we understand someone's got to be in charge. Someone has to make sure the bills are paid. Someone has to make sure that the doors are open and things are fixed. Someone's got to be accountable for the thing. And that's where the idea of a bishop is. It's the overseer. He's the one who's responsible. He's the one to look over. We understand that there are different... Churches that use the word bishop in a different way than the Bible uses it. But the Bible uses it as a synonymous term with pastor. That a pastor has the responsibility of shepherding the sheep. The overseer, the title of the overseer is still a pastor. But it carries the idea that he's an overseer. He's making sure that things are done. He's the one that is in charge of making sure something is done. Then there's a third term that the Bible refers to. Which is still the same term. And that is the word elder. The word elder. Elder carries the idea of someone mature. It doesn't necessarily mean they're old, but it means that they're mature in the Lord. It carries their idea of how their relationship in the Lord, their growth in the Lord. And that a part of a pastor's responsibility is that he is supposed to be mature enough in the Lord to help take people from where they are and move them forward. So we could see that there are three terms that are synonymous with pastor that is used throughout the Bible or throughout the New Testament that the idea of a pastor, bishop, and elder. So when we come to this list here where it says that if a man desire the office of a bishop, we understand this is dealing with the idea of a pastor. What are the qualifications of a pastor? The next thing we come to is not only the terms of a pastor, but we also see the call of a pastor. The call of a pastor. Notice with me in the book of First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Now when we see this idea of desire, this is key because this is someone who's died to self and said, God, what would you have me to do? And God has placed his desire in the man's life. And he desires to do what God has given him to do. There is a call to preach. That someone who's not called to preach is in the wrong business. That this is a specific call from God. A pointing of God on a man's life for a certain job. For a certain responsibility. And this is an important thing. God is calling. God has a good and perfect and acceptable will for some people's life to become a pastor. And we want to make sure that the call is from God. That they're not mama, <laughs> mama called and papa sent. But they are sent from God. That it is God that has put his hand on his life. Perhaps maybe I could read something about the call of God from Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. Charles Spurgeon said this. The first sign of a heavenly call is an intense, all-absorbing desire for the work. In order for there to be a true call to the ministry, there must be an irresistible, overwhelming, craving, and raging thirst for telling others what God has done for their own souls. Combined with the earnest desire to become a pastor, there must be an aptness to teach and some measure of other qualities needed for the office of a public instructor. In order for a man to prove his call, he must make a successful trial of these. In order to further a man's call, after a little exercise of his gifts, 
as such as I've already spoken of, he must see a measure of conversion work going on under his efforts or may conclude that he has made a mistake and therefore may go back by the best way he can. A step beyond all of this is needful in our inquiry. The will of God concerning pastors is made known through the prayerful judgment of his church. It is needful as a proof of your vocation that your preaching should be acceptable unto the people of God. Now that's according to Charles Spurgeon, which basically said that someone who has a call to preach, they can't do anything else but preach and be happy. They can't go sell shoes. They can't be a doctor. They can't be a lawyer. They can't be the president. If God's called them to be a pastor, that God has put an overwhelming desire and they cannot be satisfied with anything but that. For someone who comes up, and, and I've seen plenty of young men who says, yeah, I think I'm called to preach, but have no desire, no umph, no burning. It doesn't match up with the records of what the Bible says and, and the careful earnest of other people. In addition, it says someone who's called to preach will see people saved because that's the whole purpose of why God sent someone to preach is to go ahead and bring people to others. And there must be a measure of conversion work. There must be proof. And then it's not necessary, but as a further evidence, the people in the church must say, yeah, he's a preacher. There's something about him. <laughs> They must accept him as a preacher. If they say, man, there's no way I'd listen to that young man. There's a problem. There's something, an issue there. Another person who weighed in on this was Isaac, or sorry, not Isaac Newton, John Newton. John Newton, if you are familiar with, wrote the song Amazing Grace. This is what he said about the call to preach. He said, it starts with a desire to serve God above all else. Notice Spurgeon said the same thing and Newton said the same thing. It starts with this desire, a desire to serve God above nothing else. There's nothing else that he can imagine doing other than serving God and what God has given him to do. John Newton also said that there was a demonstration of preparedness and equipping. Someone who has the call to preach has a desire to try to make himself follow God to allow God to equip him to study to prepare to want to know about preaching to want to know a little bit more about what God has him to do then John Newton also said this there's a display of providential working of God in his life and ministry remember that this is a spiritual work and it's not me that's doing the work it's God and it must be evidence that God has his hand upon that young man or an older man. There's older people that are called to the preacher ministry. But there has to be evidence that God's hand is upon him. That God is working through him. That he's depending upon God in his life and his ministry. John Newton also said this. A man called of God is not called to the ministry as a fallback position. Due to his inability in some secular profession. What he's saying there is that the call to preach isn't because I can't succeed in anything else. Well, I tried to, tried to work at Walmart and didn't work out. I guess I'll be a preacher. It's not a fallback position, but it's one of God's most important positions that he has a good and perfect and acceptable will. The most important thing that can happen in your life is for you to follow God's will. If God desires for you to be a mechanic, let me tell you the greatest thing in your life is to be a mechanic. If God desires you to be a teacher, the greatest thing you could be in your life is to be a preacher. But if God, a teacher, if God's called you to be a preacher then the greatest thing you could do in your life is to be a preacher. And for someone called of God for that, 
It's not a fallback position. It's not because he can't succeed. In fact, someone who is called to preach should be successful in other areas of his life because he's following after God and God's hand is upon him. But that should be evident. So we start off with the idea here of the terms of a pastor. The Bible uses several terms synonymous with pastor. The idea of pastor, uh, bishop, and elder. Then we see the idea of the call to preach, that it is a specific call of God upon a man's life to follow his will in this specific area. That the Bible says that this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. This is God's will for him, and he's fully committed to following what God has given him to do. Now we come to the requirements of a pastor. The Bible takes time to give a list of what God is looking for, for someone to be in the office of a pastor. Now, let me pause here, that there is a difference between a preacher and a pastor. You are called to preach, and then God leads you into a different area. Someone could be called to preach and be led into revival work, like a Brother Samador or a Paul Swanky. Someone could be called to preach and then sent out as a missionary, as we have plenty of missionaries that come through our church. Then someone could be called to preach, and God leads them into the office of a pastor. But that is God's leading and what God has put them in. But there are requirements for someone to be a pastor. In order to hold this, there are certain rigid requirements that God gave, not Paul gave, that God gave for his church to oversee the work. Let's walk through these requirements if you don't mind. And again, we have the idea that we want to see young men called up from our church to become a pastor. So these are qualifications that we want to pray for them on, for them to work on in their life. Notice, if you don't mind, in verse number two, we could see the first qualification here. A bishop then must be blameless. So the first requirement of a pastor is that he must be blameless. Well, that kind of makes sense, right? The word blameless carries the idea... <laughs> That something that cannot be called into account. It carries the idea that there's no reproach. Uh, a word picture is without handholds. That you can't grab a hold of the guy and accuse him of something. You can't grab a hold of him. That the, the pastor should be blameless. There's nothing you could grab a hold and say, you're a sinner here. You've messed up here. He needs to live his life above reproach. That a pastor's testimony is so important that it has to be guarded because when that testimony is damaged, the people willing to listen to him will be damaged. His influence will be damaged. He has to be blameless. He has to guard himself and his testimony. Notice as we go on to a second requirement that is listed here. Notice again in verse 2. A bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Now notice the wording here, the husband of one wife. Later on, Paul is going to give the requirements of a widow and explain what a widow indeed is and says that she must be the wife of one husband. Now if she's a widow, where's her husband? He's passed on. So when it says that she is the wife of one husband, what did that mean? That she had one husband in her life, now her husband's dead. Well, using the same wording, we understand here that a pastor 
pastor has to be the husband of one wife, meaning that he has not been divorced. He hasn't disqualified himself. That is one of the requirements. I understand with our culture today, with 50% of all divorces or marriages ending in divorce, that some people want to change the wording in order to qualify more people. But we have to stick with the Bible qualifications here about the home and how the home is so important. And that the pastor must be the husband of one wife. Meaning, not one wife at a time, but he's had one wife <laughs> in his life. He's not been divorced, that marriage hasn't fallen apart, that he has had the testimony for an example for others. And it's also mentioned, by the way, for deacons, that's a requirement too, that God has placed it for the leadership of the church to have this requirement. So we start off with the idea of the first qualification is that a pastor must be blameless. We see that also that the pastor needs to be a husband of one wife. Notice as it goes on, it gives another word here, a bishop must be blameless, then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Then we have the word vigilant. Vigilant. This means circumspect. It carries the idea of being <laughs> observant and attentive about things around. That the pastor's responsibility is to know what's going on. May I put a little asterisk here? That a pastor worth his salt knows more than what you think he knows. The pastor is supposed to be an observer, to understand what's going on, to be able to gauge the spiritual temperature. Someone put it as a picture like this. It's like a cat walking on a fence with two pit bulls on either side. That cat needs to be observant. He needs to know what's going on. The same idea with a pastor. It needs to be vigilant, circumspect. He needs to understand what's going on around him. So we have this idea of vigilant. Notice it goes on. It gives another word here. It gives the idea of sober. Sober. The word sober carries the idea of a serious attitude towards the work. A serious attitude towards the work. And that doesn't mean that he can't have a sense of humor or that he has to walk around solemnly with no expression. That's not what it's talking about. But it's talking about that it's someone who draws wise conclusions. Meaning he knows that the things that he says and the things that he does affects other people. And oftentimes it is a life and death thing that some misspoke, some flippant thing can hurt someone in their Christian life. And that he has to take it seriously. He, has, he can't just be flippant. He has to be guard on what he says. And how he behaves. And how he acts. And by the way that's hard. Because being a public speaker. You say a lot of words all the time. And the more words that escape from your mouth. The more likelihood that something comes out. That's not supposed to be there. But we understand. <laughs> there's a little bit of forgiveness from people. But. There's an idea that if you don't take the ministry seriously, if you don't take your guard and your responsibility seriously, you could do a lot of damage by taking the office lightly, by taking the office of the pastor lightly, not being sober, not being serious towards the work that God has given. Notice as it goes on in verse 2, this is a big list just in one verse. Notice as it goes on, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, notice this, of good behavior. This carries the idea of orderly conduct. 
Meaning there's, he's not doing questionable things. This does mean that the pastor is held at a higher responsibility than everyone else. For example, there are some things that people can do that's in the pews that I can't do. Because I'm held at a higher standard. I have less leeway, both from God and from other people. That some other people may say, well, I could do this, and they could get away with it. But if I said I did the same thing, then other people would have a fit. I am held at a higher standard. All pastors are, and they have the responsibility of being a good behavior, not even stepping in anything that's questionable. That we must be beyond all approach because we have to keep ourselves, a pastor must keep himself above criticism. Now, we're going to get criticized for anything anyways. Might as well be criticized for good things rather than <laughs> finding something that someone could grab a hold on and have a legitimate complaint for. You know, I'd rather be com complained, well, that's someone who just preaches the Bible. Some people complain about that. Not people here, of course. But, you know, I'd rather be the, the guy, oh, that's a guy who always prays for people. Hey, if you're going to be criticized, might it be criticized for something good? Instead of other things. We're not going to belabor all of these points. There's too many to go through. But we're getting the idea here of that he needs to be of good behavior. Notice as it goes on, it gives another thing here. Verse number two, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband and one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior. Notice this, given to hospitality. Given to hospitality. This carries the idea of loving the stranger. That the pastor must show himself friendly. The pastor is forced to be outgoing. Now, I know none of you will probably believe this, but I'm a loner by nature. I'd rather be in a in a nice house with internet and my family and no one else. I know some of you don't believe that. I'd rather be quiet and not say anything. But it's a requirement of a pastor to be outgoing. You have to put people at ease. You have to go after them. Some people could sit in a church and no one talk to them. Someone has to talk to them. Someone has to break the ice. And guess what? Family, unfortunately, it trickles down to you too. That because a pastor is responsible for being a good hospitality, the wife must be a good hospitality. The kids must be of good hospitality because it carries along with that same reputation of a pastor. They must show themselves friendly, must be given to hospitality, must be make it so we can reach out to strangers and they respond well, that we can do whatever we can to make them feel at home. That's part of a requirement is that they're given a hospitality. Notice at the end of verse 2, we have one more requirement in this verse that they are apt to teach. Apt to teach. This carries the idea that there's some substance to the message. We're delivering God's word. God's word isn't boring, by the way. In fact, someone said this, there's no such thing as a boring message, but boring preachers. God's word is always exciting. Always exciting. There's always things to dig from and learn from. Doctrine's not boring. The Bible's not boring. We're, we're to make it come alive. There has to be an aptness. Now, we understand some people have different abilities to teach. Some people are great teachers. Some people can get by. But there has to be some aptitude to be able to communicate God's word and make it understandable to someone else. That aptness to teach, there has to be, that they have to have some sort of ability to be able to relay truth to other people so they can understand it. As we come to verse 3, we see the list continued on. Notice with me in verse 3, not given to wine. Here we come to this 
requirement here of a pastor is that he's not to be given of wine. He's supposed to stay away from it because a leadership's supposed to be separated from the world. Once again, it's one of those things that the world can accuse people on. Because of a pastor, alcohol can do so many different things and give people an excuse to accuse someone. A pastor is supposed to step aside and be blameless even in the idea of drink. Notice this goes on in verse number three. Not given to wine, no striker. This carries the word picture of someone who's always ready with his fist. Someone who's always ready for a fight. Just ready to go. The pastor is not supposed to be contentious or obnoxious. He's not supposed to be ready to jump into a fight. He's not supposed to be ready to to, uh, pick at something just to try to get a fight. Pick, 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 pick. The Bible says he's not supposed to be a striker. He's not supposed to be ready. (laughs) That's opposite of what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to try to diffuse a situation. Notice as it goes on in verse 3, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre. The word filthy lucre carries is the same equivalent of money. That they're not supposed to be greedy of money. By the way, any preacher who's in it for the money is going to be sorely disappointed. <coughs> but he's not in it for the money. It's not in it for the love of money. And that we need to be careful with how a church handles finances because... A pastor can get stuck in the middle of it even if he's, he's, not a, he's not dealing with the money directly. It has to be something that's carefully because people are sensitive with money. And we, are, we hear all the time how companies fall because of mishandling of money. It's something that's quite personal. People have money and most of us don't have a lot of it. So what we do have, it needs to be used wisely. And so a pastor needs to be trusted with money that he's not using it every time to go to Red Lobster every evening or he needs to be careful with, <laughs> with how money is used within the church and concerning himself as well. Notice as it goes on in verse 3, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, patient. The word patient carries the word picture of forbearing or almost like crossing your arms. And, it, and that... Um, in that picture, it carries the idea of you're not acting, you're waiting, you're responding. You're not ready to leap in <laughs> because there are times that we need to be patient. It carries the idea of not insisting on something, but allowing God to do his work. By the way, it is hard to wait on God and it is hard to wait on others. That sometimes people don't get it and you got to smile and nod and let God work on them. Sometimes you want, you're ready for God to do something and God's not ready to do something And you have to wait. And if you get impatient on waiting on God, how are we going to teach other people to be patient on God? We have to be that example of being able to wait on God. And people say that someone, that pastor is not getting anxious, he's not worried, but he's able to kind of say, we're trusting in God. We could wait on him. He is worth waiting on. But that's part of the requirement is to be patient. If a pastor can't be patient with people, he's in the wrong business because people will (laughs) require lots of patience. All the time. We'll see that a little bit more here in a bit. Notice again in verse 3. It gives another qualification. Not given a wine. No striker. Not greedy of filthy lucre. But patient. Not a brawler. Not a brawler. The Bible says that we need to be peacemakers. And the pastor needs to be trying to work. To bring peace. Do you know that we could disagree with people. Without being disagreeable. That if somebody disagrees with me. I don't have to get in a fist fight with them. I don't have to tell them where they're wrong. 
Do you know that it's allowable to allow people to be wrong? In fact, the Bible talks about that in the book of Corinthians. It gives the expression, take the wrong. Take the wrong. Meaning that if I'm in a disagreement with someone, what's wrong with letting them be wrong? What's wrong with me in order to fix a relationship to say, you know what? I could tell you that we've had a misunderstanding and I apologize. How can we get this right? Even if I'm not the guilty party or in my mind, I'm not the guilty party. That we could all get an idea of pride. Well, I'm not going to apologize till he apologizes first. Someone has to be first. Someone has to fix this. Someone has to bring peace. There's no use of having people warring in the church. Someone has to step in and try to be the peacemaker. And the pastor is supposed to be heading that up. That if someone has an ought and it's very obvious that there's an ought, what can I do to make this right? What can I do to fix this? Even if I don't think I was wrong, it's my responsibility to be a peacemaker and to be the example of how to deal with others. <coughs> Notice again in verse 3, we see something else. Not given to wine, not striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler. Notice this, not covetousness. Not covetousness. Now this often deals with money matters and worldly possessions that we shouldn't be coveting. Well, as a pastor, I want a new truck and desiring and drooling over someone else's truck. <laughs> Means I need to be, the Bible says, godliness with contentment is great gain. To be able to content with what God has allowed me to have and trust him that he will provide what I need in that time. But this also carries on with the idea of coveting someone else's ministry. You know, we're not the biggest church in the world. A pastor can get his eyes off the Lord and say, how come I don't have a bigger church? How come we don't have this? We need to be satisfied with what God has given me. Well, we need a lot more people. Well, this is what God has trusted us with. We need to be content with what God has given to us. You see, it carries the idea of being content, being able to trust God with what he has given us at the moment. Instead of desiring, when we start getting our eyes on other people's stuff, whether it's ministry or trucks or money or houses or whatever else, we become dissatisfied and then we turn against God and not satisfied with what God has given to us. And then we say God wasn't good to us. And that's a bad place to be. Notice as we go on in verse number four and five, we have this whole list together. One that ruleth his own house. One that ruleth well his own house. Notice in verse 4. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection. The word subjection is a military term that refers to those of lesser rank. Meaning that he has his house in order. And I'm not saying that we're supposed to run our house like a military function. But it does carry the idea that there is an idea of a chain of command. And that there is a response to a higher ranking official giving an order to a lower ranking official. That there's a proper way of responding. There's a proper way of dealing with things. Notice as it goes on, it gives this other thing. Verse number four. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. The word gravity here carries the idea of dignity or reverence respect that children of a pastor should look up to their pastor think of kids not only are they his dad but he's also the pastor but he looks up to them with an awe and respect that there's something to it now a, a, a parent who has messed up his kids will have a hard time having the kids respect 
inside of an office of a pastor. Now, why is this so important? Why is it important that a pastor has his home in order? Well, there's a logic point to it that if I can't raise my kids well, how can I counsel someone else how to raise their kids? If I can't have a good marriage with my wife, how can I counsel someone else how to have a good marriage with their? But notice something else that it gives here, verse number five. Notice this parenthetical statement. This is a thought break here. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Remember we spoke this morning that people go through different stages of spiritual growth, that someone could be 50 years old and still be a babe in Christ. How do children act sometimes? Do children have a fit? Yeah. You know a pastor needs to know how to deal with a child having a fit? Properly? Instead of just smack them across the face? You know, for some reason they frown upon that for a pastor to do that too. Just for some reason. <laughs> Does sometimes children want to be rebellious? Well, if a pastor can't deal with a rebellious child in his house, how is he going to deal with rebellious people in a church? That happens. You understand that it's a relationship. If a pastor freaks out of his own kids all the time, what is he going to do when a church person does something wrong? You see, there's something about family, and all of us know that, that our family can press buttons on us to make us flip out pretty quick. The family is very personable. There's something about family that we could go to zero to 60. Well, if a pastor can deal with his family when they're rebellious, when they're disobedient, when they go crazy, when they do something wrong, when they make a mistake. If he could deal with them well, he could deal with the church folks well when they get rebellious, when they get disobedient, when they make a mistake. Does it make sense? Because it's how a pastor deals with people. This is a people business. We all seen Walmart parents, right? The kid's crying and having a fit. And the parent, there's parents that are negotiating. If you shut up, I'll give you this candy bar. Just quiet, be quiet. There's other ones, why are you making me look bad? And they're yelling louder than the kids. I mean, you go to Walmart and you can learn all kinds of things about people. Do you know a pastor is not allowed to respond that way? And so if a pastor can't deal with his children who misbehave or make a mistake. By the way, let me tell you something, a secret Pastor's kids aren't perfect, nor should they be expected to be perfect. They are children. You weren't perfect as a child, neither are they. But it is dealing with how a pastor deals with children when they misbehave shows how a pastor is going to deal with church folks when they make a mistake. Does that make sense? This is why having the family is so important to God. That it's setting it up and why church folks should, when they're choosing a pastor or in our cases, we're preparing to train a pastor that we have to instruct them how to run their home first. So then they can respond to other little children in the church when they misbehave. Does it make sense? Don't you want a pastor who deals with his children correctly now? Say, I understand you made a mistake. Let's figure out how to fix this. Isn't that how you want a pastor to deal with you if you mess up? And by the way, you will mess up from time to time. You don't want someone freaking out. How do you do this to me? Why? Uh, that wouldn't be good, right? We need to be, this, God, this is why God has put this together. How to deal with a family. How to deal with things well. 
Notice as we go on to more requirements in verse 7. More, or sorry, verse 6. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall in the condemnation of the devil. The word novice means a beginner, someone who's just now learning. Now remember, the other term for pastor is an elder, someone who's spiritually mature. That's opposite of a novice. And this requirement is not necessarily for the church as it is the pastor. You understand this is part of the stage of spiritual growth that you have someone who's starting to learn in Christ and they learn a little knowledge. And with a little knowledge comes pride. Knowledge that's not applied properly turns into pride. And when someone's got pride, let me tell you, I know something that you don't know. You listen to me. And there's people that get to the place of pride because they haven't been tried. It hasn't been tempered out. That's why young men need to be tempered. They, they don't need to be straight out of Bible college jumping into the ministry. They need to have some time of experience to get some of that worked out. Because that's a normal stage in Christian growth is that pride stage. And someone just now beginning can make a lot of mistakes and that pride can hurt a lot of folks. And so this requirement is not as much as for the church as it is for the man himself. Because if he destroys a church because of his pride, he's also destroyed his own ministry and his own effectiveness when he advances forward somewhere else. So what happened to the church you pastored? Well, they nailed signs on my lawn that said, die, pastor, die. And we want you to be our pastor because, you understand? It's dealing with the idea for himself that is not to be a novice. It's his protection to allow him to go and get some experiences under the protection of another pastor to work some of those kinks out. That's one of the privilege of having a pastor who's teaching and training young men for the ministry to work with them to get some of that things out and allow them to have some experience and have a pastor to be able to take some of that blow and damage out so it doesn't hurt people, a church later on. Notice as we see something else as a requirement here in verse number 7. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into the reproach of the snare of the devil. Here it's talking about that the pastor needs to have a good report to them that are without. Who are them without? Those without outside of the church. That means that a pastor needs to be paying his bills. He needs to have his finances in order. If a pastor can't pay his bills and he has a bad testimony, if the electric company's mad at the pastor, well, then that's going to carry in. If, especially in areas of small towns, because in small towns, there's no such thing as a secret. It spreads around quickly. And if a pastor's overdue with a bill and everybody talks about it, well, then when he goes, knocks on the door and says, how can I be a blessing? And no one's going to receive him. He has to have a good testimony without his community. He has to have his life in order. He has to have his bills paid. He has to be able to have good communication with them without. He must, just because they're not a church person doesn't mean I get to treat them any differently. I have to have a good testimony. I have to be able to reach out. I have to be able to not have a big scandal where the whole town is talking about it. That's a requirement. Again, that's more practical for the idea of effectiveness. To have a pastor pastoring a small church in a small town where the whole town hates him, it's going to be a very miserable experience. 
He has to be able to have a good testimony without. Now, again, when we go through this list, this is something that we go, okay, well, that's a good list, but I'm not a pastor. This is why we're trying to apply it in a certain way. That one of the things every healthy organism reproduces itself. We need to start praying for some young men to be surrendered to the ministry. And as they're surrendered to the ministry, that when they get called to preach, doesn't mean that they're going to be ready to go pastor the next day. But we need to work with them, love on them, and help them to get these things. We need to take young men and teach them how to do finances correctly, how to do a budget, how to pay their bills. And if they can't pay their bills, how to have good communication with the bill collector. Do you understand that most bill collectors will work with you if you have good communication? If they have to track you down, they're not in a good mood for that. But you go talk to them before it becomes a problem. That's part of having a good testimony. Working with people, talking with people. But that has to be taught. We have to teach them how to teach others. We have to teach them how to be patient, how to work with people, deal with them how to have a good marriage, how, deal with them how to deal with problems within the marriage. These things are things that we as a church get the privilege of teaching some young men in our future. But wouldn't it be wonderful to have young men surrender to the ministry? To have young men say, you know what, I'm going to be a preacher. I'm going to be a missionary. To have people sent out from this church all over the world serving God. What a great privilege that would be. In order for that to happen, we do need to know what is the qualifications of a pastor. What is God looking for for someone who's going to stand and lead God's people to where God wants them to be at? This is something we need to be praying for and looking for ourselves. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you. Thank you.